One of the reasons I love Mormonism so much is because it's more than just a church. It's not enough just to show up on Sunday, throw a couple bucks in the collection plate, listen to a sermon, shake some hands, and call it a day. Mormonism is a community, almost a counterculture with its own language, customs, and practices. Sometimes I think we forget that the Lord designed it to be that way. We see this most often in our early history. This was never more evident than when the early pioneers of the church tried to do something truly radical in creating a new alphabet. This week I have Joshua Erickson back on the podcast to cover the Desert Alphabet. We cover its history, its purpose, and ultimately its demise, which I think carries with it a warning for us today as Mormons. Stick around for that and more on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Joshua, how's it going? Yeah, going well. Good. Uh, glad to be here. How's uh, how's life been treating you? It's been a while, right? I mean, there for a while, we were we were pretty consistent, <laughs> and then we finished those feast days. And yeah, it's been a while. Uh, I've been just busy with life, and um, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, my wife's expecting twins. And, yeah. And, um, and, you know, there's all the summertime projects around the, around the yard and yeah, I'm planning a trip to Missouri next week. So I've got a lot on my plate. Work's super busy, uh, you know, which is good, but right. I'm, uh, I'm low on sleep, uh, but I've been getting a lot done. So I, well, <laughs> that's always a trade-off, isn't it? Yeah. I, I know there's, there's times where I'm like, it would just be so nice just to shut everything down for a week and then like not leave the house, right? Just be snowed in something like that, not leave the house. But right now that's just doesn't seem to be in the cards. So when's your wife do? It's going to be, uh, in end of October, beginning of November. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when we, when we initially talked here and I didn't, I didn't realize this, but uh, I believe it was Melissa that told me that uh, you're kind of a, a fiend for the, for the old Deseret alphabet. 
I I do like the Desert Alphabet. Uh, I have liked it since. Uh, well, I can't, I was introduced to the, to the Desert Alphabet when we were in Los Angeles. I was going to graduate school. Okay. CLA. And we were over at one of our friends' house. Uh, actually, I think we're babysitting their kids. It was a student ward. Okay. So just young families. Uh, I didn't have any kids at the time. Uh, although we we had our first kid out there. I don't remember if we had had our first kid or not. But anyway, we were out there. We were uh, babysitting. And uh, there's one of our friends. He was he was an English major. But he, on his bookshelf, uh, and that's one of the things. When I go over to someone else's house, I always just feel like I'm attracted to the bookshelf. Sure. Sure. Straight. I'm the same way. But he had, uh, he had a copy of one of the Deseret Alphabet readers really yeah and so uh, I, I picked that up and pulled it down and it was just very cool actually i have a I have a copy right here okay um i believe it was the uh the first reader so i don't know if you can how yeah no they that, that's coming through so i'll show you what it looks like on the inside so i could i could tell it was a mormon book i mean sure it's got a beehive. It's got Salt Lake Temple, you know. But I couldn't, I couldn't read anything in it. <laughs> so, oh uh, wow. So it was, it was a uh, very strange. There is, there was a uh, uh, these books that they were printed, and we'll we'll talk about that some more. But these books, they all had uh, some sort of like a like a key in the front part. Okay. So all right. It shows the shows the Desert Alphabet letters and their pronunciations. That is fascinating. Okay, so, so so I kind of I kind of uh, saw that and then kind of went through and kind of picked through uh, the book and started to start to decipher it, I guess, and just got hooked. And you were going to ask a question. Yeah. So with with the Desert Alphabet, what what is first off? I want to say it's one again. Mormon history is so metal on so many different <laughs> aspects, right? Like people forget Brigham's not coming out here to the West and to the Salt Lake Valley just to have a place within the United States. He left America, right? Him and right. the saints. Yeah. We're out. This hasn't gone well for us. Right. We're going someplace that's not America, right? right. Big fan of the Constitution. He, he, he loved the Constitution, but he felt right. like... I love the Constitution, but I hate the damn rascals who administer it. Exactly, like yeah. And so you you get this feeling that he's he's wanting to move out of there, and and not just start um, a new colony for America, but this is a different country. This is a theodemocracy. This is the kingdom, right? Yeah. And one of the things that lends itself to that is is this idea of even its own. Um, alphabet right yeah. i mean it's 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 kind metal <laughs> i i don't know how else to put it it's absolutely cool what was his impetus for doing that what was his reasonings uh you know what the the reasoning his reasonings were basically to make it was it was an, an impulse to make everything better there's, there's actually kind of several reasons i guess but they all kind of stem together one is and we all we all everyone who speaks english and, everyone, and especially people who have learned English as a second language know how difficult English is as a language among the languages of the world. Um, and, you know, a big part of that is that we are very inconsistent with spelling. 
Right. Um, so, so that was one is to help to help not only children, but also foreigners mm-hmm. to uh, learn English. Cause there were a lot of folks from Scandinavia coming over at that time. Correct. And, um, and then the other, you know, the other kind of dual purpose here is, is that there's just an, an idea of improvement in of everything. Anything that can be improved, we want to improve, gotcha. uh, including language. And, and there's not only, um, it's not only just a, uh, you know, that uh, Yankee worth work ethic kind of thing, but there's also uh, a theological reason because, because we believe and our scriptures say that languages, our language is corrupted. Right. <clears throat> now, uh, no one ever said that the desert alphabet was like Adamic or something like that. But there was kind of an idea, I suppose, that that we're going to that this is a step towards purifying our language. Not that not that it, not that the desert, that the desert alphabet is, um, is the dead. Right. Yeah. But uh, you know, but it's that idea of God helps those that help themselves, and you know, we show God that we want a pure language, and so we and we should demonstrate that we demonstrate our faith by coming up with a new alphabet and trying to purify english as best we can and then maybe we'll qualify ourselves to receive more right so how long was was the the desert alphabet being used i mean what's what's its lifespan it was uh it was short uh you know a decade or two um so I actually have I have a presentation here. I don't know if okay. you got it up there. I yep. I I'm gonna share I'm gonna go right through. It. We'll go through the history, and the history actually goes starts before Brigham Young. Okay. So uh, so we're gonna I'm gonna start by talking kind of about uh, about the history uh, of English reform, English spelling reform, English language reform, and also some of the ideas that go into language and alphabets and things like that, and then. How the uh, how the Mormon experiment into English reform kind of ties into the larger, okay, uh, larger English reform. So, okay, first slide there. C H equals what? Shh, shh, or ch? Right, right. Usually we would say ch. I like it as in um, church. Yeah, like church, which is the next slide there. Right. Uh, so church, <clears throat> but. Next slide. What about cello or witch or actual? Okay. So sometimes we spell that ch sound with just a C or with a TCH or okay. with a T. And, and uh, this is, you know, frustrating to children. Right. Because they're like, just sound it out. And then they realize they can hardly sound out anything. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried teaching a child to read. It's you like, know, oh, this one is an exception. This one just says, yeah, this one says actual. In, in full disclosure, I never worked with my kids much on reading because I'm, I'm dyslexic. And oh, so I, oh. I learned to read by not like phonetics, but I learned to read based off of cat is a good just an example right you know cat is cat i don't see it cat right sometimes those are scrambled but what i was able to do is figure out if those three letters are together together it's probably cat and so that's that's how i learned to read so (laughs) but yeah yep that's good so now we could say well okay there's a lot of ways to spell that 
ch, that ch sound. But you know, if we do see ch, then surely that's going to be a ch sound, right? Uh, but that's it's not. We're not even that good, right? So, next slide. You know, what about sometimes ch makes a sh sound like an we, we would think of as an sh sound, right? Like Charlotte, or sometimes ch is silent, right? Like yacht. Um, and sometimes it makes a k sound like. Chaos. chaos yeah, yeah. And it is it is chaos it, it is confusing isn't it i didn't even think about it but when you stop to think about it it, it it's got to be frustrating it's tremendous so um have you seen this word before gaudy it looks like gaudy or goatee maybe you'd pronounce it but um john gaudy that's where i went to when okay. i saw it yeah this is this word is actually pronounced fish what yeah go to the next slide Actually pronounced fish. Okay, and you go to the next one. Yep. And uh, how do we know it's pronounced fish? Well, because it's, you know, has a GH, which is like in rough. rough. Yeah. Okay. And O, like in women. Yep. And TI, like motion. So okay. Fish. Yeah, fish. That's how you spell fish. Or you could spell fish this way, right? I, I guess you could. <laughs> yeah. According yeah. to the rules of English. No, you're right. right? You're right. Okay. The rules of English are uh, are all over the place. So uh, there's a poem that I that I like. Okay. Oh, strange lingo. Yes. Our strange lingo. <clears throat> I'll read it here. When the English tongue we speak, why is break not rhymed with freak? Will you tell me why it's true? We say so, but likewise few. And the maker of the verse cannot rhyme his horse with worse. Beard is not the same as herd. Cord is different from word. Cow is cow, but low is low. Shoe is never rhymed with foe. Think of hose, dose, and lose. And think of goose, and yet with choose. Think of comb, tomb, and bomb. Doll and roll, or home and sum. Since pay is rhymed with say, why not paid with said, I pray? Think of blood, food, and good. Mold is not pronounced like could. Wherefore done, but gone and lone? Is there any reason known? To sum, to sum up all, it seems to me, sounded letters don't agree. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, uh, this problem with English, you know, is, which has been the bane of everyone who's learned English for centuries, uh, was noticed and attempted to be corrected first by some of our founding fathers. My man. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin. Okay. I got him there. Yep. Okay. So yeah, Benjamin Franklin was one of the first who tried to fix this problem. And he came up with... Gotcha. Yep. He came up with um, with a reformed alphabet. And there it is right there. Uh, it was, he came up with this idea in 1768, but he didn't actually publish it until 1779. Hmm. Um, and he had a, he had a you know, little book that he, uh, he published in. So what's the difference here? Uh, he actually got rid of six letters. Okay. So they're the ones crossed C's out. out, J's out, Q yeah. is out, W, X, Y is out. Yep. And then he had extra some extra letters uh to make some vowel sounds and also some combination sounds so real quick did did brigham try to borrow from this at all no uh not uh not directly okay no. um 
So, uh, so there's his alphabet, and he he had he had also so this alphabet uh, he got basically got rid of six and added six. Right. So it still had twenty six letters, uh, which is not enough to make to spell all the sounds in English. So, but he had he had some ideas for like kind of standardization too, like when you know when we have um, an an oi sound. O-I, you know, like an oil or right. boy. Like we're always going to spell it with this combination of letters. Right. We're not going to do O-I sometimes and O-I sometimes. We're going to standardize it. Right. Gotcha. So it's a kind of a, it was a, it was a simplification and also a standardization okay. that he was, that he was looking at. So he came up with this, when he came up with this idea, he was actually living in London. He was back, you know, across the pond and he showed his, you know, his new scheme to his landlady and to his landlady's daughter, who was named Mary Stevenson. And Mary was kind of like, he kind of adopted her as his own daughter. Okay. He had a daughter, uh, I guess, similar age uh, named Sally, but, uh, you know, back at home. Anyway, he showed this to her and um, she didn't really like it. So she, she actually sent him this letter uh, back and she actually wrote, with his new system <laughs> and saying, uh, dear sir, I have transcribed your alphabet, which you think might be of service to those who wish to acquire an accurate pronunciation, if that could be fixed. But I see many inconveniences as well as difficulties that would attend bringing your letters and orthography into common use. All our etymologies would be lost. Consequently, we would not ascertain the meaning of many words. The distinction, too, between words of different meaning and similar sound would be useless unless we living writers publish new editions. In short, you believe we must let people spell on in their old way, and as we find it easiest, do the same ourselves. With ease and sincerity, I can, in the old way, subscribe myself. Dear sir, your faithful and affectionate servant, <laughs> um, Mary Stevenson. So her... Uh, Benjamin uh, wrote a letter back to her uh, with his new system, kind of addressing some of her points, right? She says, it's going to be difficult. And basically his reply was, yeah, but English is already difficult. So it's not a matter of whether there's going to be difficulties or not. The question ought to be, which is more difficult? Which is going to be the great, the easiest thing to do gotcha. is to switch to this new system, which is unified and simplified and um, logical or to continue with the current system, which is cumbersome and, and hardly anyone knows how to spell well. And, uh, you know, that's, that's difficult too. Right. So, uh, and he, and of course, Benjamin, he believes that the difficulties of switching to a, like a more unified coherent system outweigh the disadvantages gotcha okay um uh he basically says he says uh you know those who those who are presently bad at spelling is only because they spell contrary to the bad rules that we have <laughs> right? they misspell because they're they end up spelling things more phonetically than they are right written. Than, than what they are and yeah. so they won't those people who are bad spellers right now, they won't even have to really learn to be good spellers. 
they'll just spell like they normally do, but we'll just have good rules that, that they'll just follow naturally, you know? So anyway, so that's his kind of, um, gotcha. His, uh, answer there. He also says that, um, that it'll be, uh, it'll make learning for foreigners and children easier, easier. which yeah. is kind of the same thing that, uh, that Brigham Young said too. Um, you know, when it comes to etymologies, etymology is the, like the origins of words, like right. this comes from the Greek or the French or Latin or whatever, but he says, you know, that stuff doesn't matter. And we just, we have, English has, and by this point, English had already changed spelling many times. Oh yeah. So saying we're going to lose, you know, the origins of words is kind of a moot point because words just have been changing anyways. Right. And so those who are scholarly and interested in that will keep track of it. And for the rest of us who don't care, right, it's not an issue. Um, so anyway, so he, uh, he goes on. One of, the, uh, one of her uh, arguments was, uh, her third argument kind of was that there would be a loss of distinction uh, between words who are different in meaning, but the same in sound. So she's talking about what we call homonyms. Okay. So oh, did my S get yep. picked off on there? So sorry. Homonyms. So there's two kinds of homonyms. There's those things that are uh, called homophones or homophones and then homographs. Right. Homophones are things that have the same sound, right? So like two, two, and two. And uh, she's correct that with like a standardized spelling based on pronunciation, then all of these three right. twos would be spelled the same way. Right. Um, however, uh, we already we already have words like that. The other kinds of homophones, things that are homographs, like right. bow of a ship and bow in archery, those are spelled the same. And when you're reading, how can you tell those apart? Context. By the context. And so that's was, that was his reply is, yes, some of the things that are homophones, they will become like homographs. And, okay. And actually these homographs, bow and bow, those would actually become differentiated by spelling, whereas they are not now. So some things would become differentiated by spelling that are not now, and other things would be, we would lose the differentiation. But the problem is still the same. We just from context. So I'm just sitting here thinking about it. And the words that seem like they would end up with the same spelling probably don't make that much of a difference because they tend to be words that aren't, they're not words that are going to make or break your point Correct. of communication. Yeah. You'll be able to tell from the context, um, uh, usually easily. And for those words that you can't tell by context, that's how jokes are made. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> that's where puns come from. So absolutely. Um, yeah. But then there are things uh, that are both homophones and homographs like stock, right? Stock and stock. Those are two different words. One is the stem of a plant and one is like to follow your prey or to, and I'm just someone, thinking, right? you know, you got stock, stock, which is follow stock, like the stock of a plant, but then you got like, livestock right right which correct which sounds too much alike anyway yes and that's another kind of stock yeah right? stock market right yeah which is uh you know stock like um yeah anyway you get the idea yeah there's we already have so many words that are 
that sound the same or are spelled the same but have different meanings that, uh, that this is not going to be uh, any difficulty. So now, so Benjamin, uh, he, he publishes this, um, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really catch on. No one, no one ever talks about, except for historians or whatever, talk about Benjamin's, uh, you know, for the Franklin alphabet. But he does get one notable convert. Okay. Uh, and that is a man named Noah Webster. Really? Who is also, you know, one of the family, I would say he's one of the founding fathers. Sure he is, yep. Yeah. And um, um, Webster was originally in favor of standardization, but not really simplification. But... Franklin kind of won him over to that idea. Okay, so now let, let me ask you this. Some of those other symbols that Franklin put forward, mm -hmm. are some of those referenced in like Webster's dictionary to this day? Do, does oh, he you know what? Uh, he might. You know, Webster actually, in some of his later writings, he actually like pays tribute to Franklin and his ideas. And I think he does print. Huh. Um, uh, not that uh, Webster doesn't adopt his actual alphabet, right? But he kind of adopts his ideas, and it's like, okay. yes, we definitely need uh, English is a mess, right? So we need to do more than just standardize. We need to actually, okay, uh, make things coherent. Gotcha. So, um, you know, and Webster was, uh, you know, he was he was a patriot. And he thought, he thought. You know, the English language has partially been corrupted by the British monarchy. Sure. And they and their uh, flirtations with Fr the French monarchy, and they want to, you know, impress the, the French. Right. And so that has kind of messed up everything. And the whole thing's just corrupted. And Americans are a new, we're a new country, a new world, a new people. And we should have a separate and distinct everything, including including the alphabet so, or not necessarily he, did, he wasn't necessarily interested in the alphabet but a, a separate um way of writing uh, was there any flirtation either with brigham or franklin on the idea of maybe a different language altogether mm, not that i know of okay yeah um that's interesting though but yeah i don't think so. i don't think they ever considered that uh so english is nice um a lot of its problems are just with the the written with the, yeah yeah so um yeah so he he did dedicate uh, some of his uh, writings you know he he wrote something called the dissertation on the english <laughs> language and uh um it was uh, dedicated to benjamin franklin and in his first dictionary um which was in eight uh, let's see first dictionary was in 1806 uh compendious dictionary of the english language uh, there was an article in there on the irregularities of English. And I think he may have referenced some of Franklin's characters in there, but um, anyway, and then, uh, and then of course, uh, you, you know, 20 years later or so, he comes out with his second edition, which is the Webster's 1828, which has gained a lot of fame. Yeah. It was originally in two volumes, but a lot of times you'll see it uh, in one in volume, the reprint in the modern volume. Yeah. So uh, not everything that Webster wanted to do has kind of been adopted, but a lot of them have. Uh, I saw this funny meme the other day. Uh, you know, English spell it color with a U. America, color with no U. England spells humor with a U. In America, humor with no U. England, flavor with a U. In America, no U. England, what the hell are you doing? 
getting rid of you. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like it. So, so that was the idea. So, um, you know, so this was, uh, you know, 1806, 1828. We're getting up to kind of like restoration sure. time period. We're right? starting to approach that time. Yep. So uh, on the scene comes this man who is uh, of vital importance to the Deseret Alphabet, Sir Isaac Pittman. So, and he, in, uh, in 1830, let's see, well. Um, like in 1845? Yeah, in, actually, I'll go to the next, next slide. Okay. So uh, he, he was a key, uh, a key player. So the first thing he did is he developed uh, in 1837, and well, this is when he published it. In 1837, he uh, came up with what he called phonography. Okay. Uh, or we, it's more commonly known as Pittman shorthand. Okay. So this was like, this was the, the invention of shorthand. So you know what shorthand yep. is? Yeah. So it's a way to take dictation. Really quickly. Really quickly. And before Pittman came up with this, there wasn't really a way to do that. Really? So which is why many of the sermons of Joseph Smith, for example, are kind of fragmentary and what they would do because they didn't, they didn't have shorthand. It hadn't been invented yet. And, and even after it had been invented, it took a while to sure. spread to the, to America, especially without telephones and internet, whatever. So um, they would have like multiple uh, scribes, you know, writing as fast as they can. And, they would miss stuff and the, but hopefully the other guy would catch it. Right. Oh, okay. And so, you know, so you read words of Joseph and there's, you know, the King fall that discourse. discourse is cobbled together from, I don't remember four or five different scribes. And, uh, and so it's not quite as uh, satisfying, but with uh, Pittman shorthand, uh, people could write very quickly. In fact, um, the world record for this, and this is hard to believe, but, you know, but that, I read this in my uh, my research. But in 1922, there was a guy named uh, Nathan Barron who was able to take dictation at 350 words per minute, writing by hand. That is with nuts. Pittman shorthand. That is faster than people can type. Yeah. Like the fastest. I looked this up too. The like the fastest typing with a keyboard is like 300 words per minute, which is smoking. But with Pittman shorthand, you can write extremely fast, which means someone could be giving a sermon and you can just write it down word for word, you know, verbatim uh, with this system and capture everything. And so this is this is why we have this is why we have the journal discourses. You know, have, right. We have full word for word sermons uh, of you know Brigham, Brigham Young and John Taylor, but not of Joseph Smith. So so what <laughs> would happen is is that four or five guys would be assigned to go take shorthand and the hope was that what one guy missed the other guy would have and then you could put it all together kind of based on recollection back from from shorthand you're talking about in joseph's day yeah and they wouldn't not, use, not they in joseph's day but in brigham's oh day. yeah in brigham's day they would have sometimes there'd just be one scribe and he would get every catch everything holy cow yeah dude i don't have enough command of the english language <laughs> to speak 350 words per minute right. yeah yeah, I know some people who can, like my daughter, for example. Right. But um, yeah, that's faster than most people speak, probably. I don't know what a a normal speaking rate is, but 350 words per minute is probably more than sufficient. Absolutely. Now, not everyone uh, can can go that fast necessarily, but 
but if you're good at Pittman and other kinds of shorthand um, have been devised as well, other systems. And actually Pittman has kind of fallen out of favor because Pittman, and there's a little chart there on the slide. But, right. Um, Pittman would distinguish between uh, different letters, sometimes with uh, the weight of the stroke. Okay. Which is easy to do when you have right a nib pen or whatever that has the you know the flexible and you can or a calligraphy kind of pen right something like that um but you know ballpoint pens which is what we use now you can't make thick and thin lines really no so in so Pittman has mostly been replaced by another system called greg shorthand which actually distinguishes between letters by the length of the stroke rather than the weight of the stroke so but there still are people who use Pittman. you just have to have a writing instrument that will allow you to so this is an honest question. I'm not being a smart ass here. I'm, I'm serious. Why is shorthand even still a thing in the day of record voice recording and that sort of thing? Uh, you know, it is probably mostly, uh, it's mostly a hobby for okay. people now. If anyone's into it nowadays, um, uh, you know, but there was a, there was a time period when ballpoint pens came out and, but voice recording and video recording wasn't the thing. Right. And Pittman was replaced by Greg. Okay. Shorthand I got you. Point. So <clears throat> I got you. And I was going to say, if that's your hobby, you got someone needs to discover girls. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, there might be girls who are interested in that's true. Shorthand. That's true. Know. Yeah. That's, that's a good point too. I don't know. Okay. So um, now the, his system of shorthand uh, basically is a system of writing sounds. Okay. So, which is why he called it phon phonography. So writing sounds. So rather than trying to, he, he doesn't have a quick way to spell. He has a quick way to capture the sounds that are being oh, okay. transmitted. So it was phonetic. Right. And he also had, uh, he also had just single symbols for many of the common words, you know, the and and, and you just write a, a particular mark as a shortcut. So right. there were shortcuts for very common things. And then the rest of it was phonetic. Right. So, you know, there's an example there. So, um, so just a couple of definitions here now, first of all. So when we talk about uh, orthography, orthography is, is basically spelling. It's a fancy word for spelling. It does technically include some other things, but uh, you know, when you see on the slides or you hear me, or if you go look up uh, the desert alphabet and try to do your own research about it, you'll see this word orthography basically means the science of spelling or how things are spelled in, in, a, in a certain language. There's another word that comes up and this is important, uh, phoneme. Hmm. So phoneme is uh, the smallest significant unit of spoken language. So this is uh, the smallest bits of significant sound. Okay. Okay. So in, in English, that would be the sounds that, uh, you know, the vowel sounds that we have. Right. So we, so it's not just A E I O U though, right? For A, we have an A ah, and an A ah, and an A. Right. Right. Those are all, all those are phonemes. Okay. Those are simple sounds that we put together to, to make words. And, uh, and then there's also graphemes. So grapheme is the smallest significant unit of written language. So that's how, uh, how do we write the sounds? Uh, and those, <clears throat> When you when you come up when you people who study languages want to see how these two kind of things interact the phonemes and the graphemes. 
And there are several different kinds of writing systems. I'm gonna go over these really quickly, but um, you know, we have pictographic writing systems and that's where the glyphs or the symbols represent whole ideas. And so, um, and these kind of things, you know, going to look at the, uh, the sandstone walls down in Southern Utah or whatever, um, these are things that are not really read, but they're kind of interpreted, right? Like I see a guy on a right on a horse shooting a, a deer or something, right? So there's he's telling a story about hunting, you know, and uh, but but we don't know exactly who the dude with the horns who the is. Dude is yeah, and and every person's gonna kind of interpret might interpret this story a little differently. So <clears throat> it's not a really tight uh, language, but it is it is a way of writing. Okay. Okay. Next, we have, this is a little tighter, we have things that are called logographic languages. So where the graphemes, so again, the written pieces represent whole words, or at least um, like the meaningful parts of words. So uh, Chinese and Japanese and uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs are logographic writing systems. So here's an example from Chinese. Right. You've seen probably stuff like this yep. before. So uh, the word, you know, the, or the, the grapheme, so the written symbol for boat, and I, I can't, I can't tell you how to pronounce it, but the written symbol for boat is actually a picture, um, and it's uh, you know made of pieces, you know, of the boat. Yeah, vessel with eight mouths or eight people. That means boat. You know, okay. <clears throat> so uh, you know, and that, and that would have been you said that would have been for, well. Would that would that would that have been the case with one like reformed Egyptian? Uh, probably very likely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So e Egyptian hieroglyphs are. And what about Paleo Hebrew? Uh, okay. Hebrew is really interesting, and actually Chinese is kind of interesting too. Chinese, um, you know, these are uh, these are pictures, but we've put them together into actual words. Right. Uh, <clears throat> Hebrew. And Paleo-Hebrew is interesting because uh, Hebrew is basically Reformed Egyptian. Right. You knew that already. Yep. Yeah. So Hebrew is the world's first alphabet. Right. And yet, uh, it is an alphabet that's made of symbols that are pictures of things. Right. And so uh, words uh, in Hebrew would kind of, uh, would you could sound them out. Uh, like you would sound out alphabetic characters and tell you how to pronounce it. But the pictures of the letters would also tell you something about oh, what the word is. Okay. So it's kind of a, it's a really, it's a really ingenious huh. uh, language. So, okay. Uh, then we have uh, syllabic writing systems. So the symbols represent syllables. Right. Uh, and so like Cherokee is a classic example of this. This is a man, Sequoia, and he came up with the, uh, the, the Cherokee syllabary. So it's, it's, not a, it's not an alphabet, but it has all of the syllables that are used in the Cherokee language. And then they string those together rather than uh, letters representing individual sounds, which are str strung together to make syllables. And then syllables are strung together to make words. Right? So okay. this is kind of a little... Now, I'm going to ask a question here because I'm an nerd like this, and, and you may not be prepared to answer it, and that's okay. But on those, on that syllabic system, mm -hmm. is there any correlation that we know of between like 
Native American syllabic and maybe a proto-Hebrew. Yeah, or I, mean, I don't know the answer to that. I know that people have looked at that. Okay. And uh, and I think there are some interesting things, you know. It's not okay. That, um, but I, I don't I can't really comment on that. Cool. I think they're, uh, you know, Cherokee is certainly distinct from Hebrew. Right. Uh, but kind of like, uh, you know, with the Chinese. Yeah. Right. Uh, the word, the Chinese word for boat just harkens back to Noah. Right. Like that's, that's, that's from Noah's Ark, you know, eight, yeah. eight people in a vessel. That's the word for boat. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I showed. It. Yep. So there's going to be, there's going to be similar, even though, I mean, Chinese and Hebrew are as different as you can get. And yet there's these like common roots. Okay. So, okay. And then finally we have alphabetic systems. This is where graphemes, uh, so right, written symbols represent phonemes, which are just the sounds. Gotcha. Not whole words, not whole ideas, um, but just sounds. So, and there doesn't need to be, and usually isn't a, an exact one-to-one -one correspondence. Okay. Um, sometimes we might you know, use several graphemes or several symbols to represent one sound. So English does that, like with the C and an H, we put those together to make the ch sound. Right. So, so uh, Hebrew is an example of an alphabet, and uh, and English as well. So, so those are both the the Shema, right? Hero Israel, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah. So okay, so. Um, and then it is important also, just another distinction is that um, we have we have graphemes. So a grapheme is kind of an, I said it's a symbol that we write, but it's kind of an abstract mm -hmm. term. Just because, you know, we have, we have a letter uh, A, which we use to write the English word uh, as in one, like, right. This is a water bottle. Right. <clears throat> but uh there's a lot but we have a lot of ways to write uh but we can we can tell right we have we call those things fonts or whatever right a lot of different styles um so i always just thought that was to look cool it is to look so cool. so now if you're going to uh so english is highly non-phonemic right so the graphemes the, the written symbols and the sounds don't match up in a consistent way uh many times so English has about 40 and you'll you'll see different things 40 to 44 phonemes so those are again those are the sounds English has about 40 to 44 sounds that uh, it makes and we have about 45 letters that we use to represent that why do I say 45 letters because uh, English is bicameral so that means we have an, a capital and lowercase or oh, lowercase okay. letters many many alphabets do not act. in fact a minority of, of alphabets have that so hebrew for example um doesn't there is no such thing as upper or lowercase proper names and you know proper nouns names and places are are not capitalized in any way and most written uh alphabets are that way There's so no... even like the name of jehovah they wouldn't have capitalized Correct. differently to yeah wow okay that's right they they, they may have some sort of uh calligraphy uh you know calligraphy or uh some something to set it way of like a fancy way of writing but the idea of upper and lowercase just didn't not exist yeah okay so english is and so that uh english is bicameral so that kind of complicates things you know 
uppercase A and lowercase A. Those are two different letters. Right. right? So we like to say we have 26 letters, but it's actually 26 times two. Yeah. Almost times two. Like because a C, yeah, uppercase C and lowercase C are the yeah. same. O is the same. X is the same. Yeah. You're right. So, English does suck. So, so some of them have uh, <laughs> different letters, different letter shapes for upper and lowercase and some of them are not. So anyway, but uh, with those, so we need to represent 40 or 44 sounds with 45 letters, but we have about 250 ways gotcha. that we write com- letters or combinations of letters to represent the phonemes that we have. Gotcha. So that's a lot of different ways. Yeah, it is. To, <laughs> Holy cow. To uh, So really, in, in other words, what we're saying is, in order to in order to fully learn fully know how to how to pronounce and um, you know read and write English, you actually have to know two hundred and fifty different combinations of letters to represent all the sounds. Uh, so a lot of those are rare, right? So we do have we do have rules that can get us a good way there, you know? right? But there are so many exceptions in English that in order to be fully uh, fluent, you would have to know all those things, right? So. Okay, you know, so just fish. back to fish. Back to fish. Yeah. Yep. So, so these are, you know, GH is a grapheme that we use to sometimes write the phoneme. Right. Okay. All right. So, so if we want to make a more convenient or consistent alphabet, then we need to know how many sounds right. we need to represent. So, how do we figure out how many sounds are in a language? The way that, the way that we do that. We've, we figure it out is uh, we look at what are called minimal pairs. So minimal pairs are, you know, words or phrases in a language that uh, differ in only one place and have different, have different meanings. And if they, if they're the same everywhere, but differ in one aspect and that causes them to have different meanings, then we know that those are different phonemes. Gotcha. It's kind of technical stuff, but here is a simple example: that versus that. So, are those do the, are those the same? Do those mean the same? I mean, if someone says, "Give me that microphone," yeah, it means the same. It means the same, right? Yeah. So, so you might be tempted to say, "Well, the sound th, like in that, and the sound d like in that, those are interchangeable. They're interchangeable. They're not. They're not really different phonemes, right? Unless we can find." Uh, unless we can find a word where making the substitution does change the meaning. Okay. Okay. So, so like this, though, though versus, versus dough. dough. Okay. Are yeah. Those different things. So those yes. have different meanings. Okay. So if we can find a pair of words that have that, where we switch those two elements that we're interested in and it changes the meaning, then we know that those are actually different sounds. Okay. And we need, then, then that's a phone. Then those are phonemes of the, of the language dude i can't imagine the amount of work that went into developing you know studying this stuff, just studying that stuff out that's nuts right so here's some other examples of just minimal pairs that you can use to show that yeah p and b are different because yeah pin and bin yep and r and l are different in english rod and lot and thigh and thigh and are both spelled th but they are different phonemes because if you thigh and thy are different words right they mean so anyway i won't go through all those but um but we can go through that with all the 
all the 40, 40 or 44 phonemes in English. And you can find, um, you know, minimal pairs and make arguments that, yes, this is the set of sounds that English needs to represent with its alphabet. Gotcha. Okay. So now back to Pittman. So he, he came up with shorthand, which was phonography, you know, how to write really quick. And he used this phonetic idea to, uh, to help simplify things, but his real love was not phonography, but phenotypy. Okay. So he wanted to, so phenotype, he wanted to actually, um, not just, you know, make a tool for those taking dictation, court reporters or whatever, excuse me, but, uh, to actually change the way that we print okay. English, like in books. Right. And, um, so, you know, here's an example of his, uh, his phenotypic alphabet. Uh, and this was put together in, it was his first, um, published in 1845. So remember he did his shorthand in 1837. Right. And he came up with his phenotypic, uh, alphabet in 1845. So again, this is, you know, things are happening, uh, in the restoration there. Um, towards the end of his life, he actually was knighted. So he became Sir Isaac Pittman. Um, mm -hmm. It was probably a, a little bit bittersweet, though, because he was knighted for his efforts in phonography, so shorthand, with no mention oh. made of the thing that he really wanted to do, which was reform right. the way that we read and write English. So, okay, so this brings us to George Darling, George Darling Watt, or George D. Watt. Heard of George D. Watt? I have not. Okay. Well, I'm about to tell you about, about him. So he was actually the very first uh, foreign convert to Mormonism. Really? Yep. And he, he happened to be uh, in England. Um, and he was baptized, as you can see there, July 30th, 1837. There's actually nine individuals that were going to be baptized that day um, by Heber C. Kimball. He was the, the missionary. And Heber C. Kimball described those first baptisms as follows. He said, I had the pleasure about 9 a.m. of baptizing nine individuals and hailing them brethren and sisters in the kingdom of God. These were the first persons baptized into the church in a foreign land. And only the eighth day after our arrival in Preston. A circumstance took place which I cannot refrain from mentioning, for it will show the eagerness and anxiety of some in that land to obey the gospel. Two of the male candidates when they had changed their clothes at a distance of several rods from the place where I was standing in the water, were so anxious to obey the gospel that they ran with all their might to the water, each wishing to be baptized first. The younger, George D. Watt, being quicker of foot than the elder, outran him and, and came first into the water. Hmm. So basically, uh, he's George, on fire. He became the first person baptized because they actually both wanted to be first. And so they decided to have a race to decide it. Oh, that, and yeah. And he ran. And so um so there he is now the uh the millennial star um you know in uh <clears throat> um later on this is this is in 1849 so quite a bit later but uh they actually uh they actually printed a like a likeness of him like, like on this card for people to like collect right and they said they were advertising uh selling these little cards saying you know if you buy this will help uh, help him to uh, immigrate to uh, oh, okay. to America. It was actually he, he was his second time coming back. But 
anyway, so, um, so he's there uh, in England. He was, he was baptized, like I said, in 1837. In 1846, um, so, oh, no, I, I'm not, okay, so, sorry, in, I have it in the notes. Um, in 1841, so a couple of years after he's baptized, he was called to be a missionary, and uh, he was called to preside over the uh, Edinburgh Conference uh, so in Scotland. Okay. So he was the mission president, basically. And while he was in Scotland in 1841, he starts studying uh, Pittman shorthand. Okay. Okay. And um, then just a year, uh, year or two after that, 1842, 43, he comes to Nauvoo and he sets up uh, the Phonographic Society of Nauvoo. He teaches phonography to the School of the Prophets. And um, can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. Uh, but, you know, of course, um, Joe Smith was uh, martyred in 1844, right. so just very shortly after he had arrived. So he didn't do much in Nauvoo, but <clears throat> uh, Joseph Smith was killed, and then they were planning on heading out west. And George Watt was uh, actually bef before Joseph was killed, they were planning on heading west. And George Watt was one of the one of the ones who had volunteered to go on that expedition to look for uh, new places for the saints. Um, but Joseph is uh, Joseph is killed, and plans change, and they actually send him to back to England. Okay. Uh, in 1846. Um, to another mission. So, uh, so he goes, he goes back there and in 1847, uh, April of 1847, while he's there, uh, Brigham Young writes to him, it is the wish of the council that you procure 200 pounds of phonotype. So this is, right. so Pittman had, had started printing books and stuff with his phenotypic alphabet. Oh. And, you know, there was, uh, there were foundries there that could make, you know, uh, type. Right. And so he said, we want you to get 200 pounds of phonotype or thereabouts as you may find necessary to print a small book for the benefit of the saints and cause uh, the same to be forwarded to winter quarters before navigation closes by some trusty brother on his return so that we have the type to use next winter. Huh. <clears throat> so Brigham's already thinking <clears throat> about stuff. Yeah. So you remember, um, Right. George Watt, he was the very first European convert, but right. he was certainly not the last. So right. he comes to Nauvoo, uh, you know, 1842, 43. But before that time, and certainly after that time, there's just a flood of Germans and Swedes and Danes, you know, and Englishmen too. But there's all these other folks who do not speak English right. and who are in an English speaking country with predominantly English speaking saints. And so, yeah, Brigham's <laughs> thinking, what what can we do to get these people up to speed uh, right. in the most efficient way possible? 
So this type that he asked uh, Watt to get, we don't know what happened to that. It, we never, it never arrived for uh, whatever reason. <clears throat> but uh, later on in 1847, we all know what happened, right? Right. They actually do leave. So they're, uh, they're, they're headed out. west. Yep. And uh, they're dealing with all the difficulties of setting up a new life in the desert, making the desert blossom as a river. Right. Okay. But it's not too, it's, they haven't been in Deseret too long before before they start thinking about bigger things which is to me is just such a testament to like the planning and the force right because it could it could so easily be a group of people who are just trying to you could just survive right which which initially it's got to be right just to survive and and then year after year goes by of just surviving and we're just we're in a new place and we just grow our crops and year after year and and that's all we think about, you know, and maybe we, you know, we go to meetings or whatever, but, but Brigham was interested in bigger things. So I had a buddy who was a big survivalist, right? I mean, like hardcore do stupid crap kind of survivalist, right? Okay. Just to push his limits. And I remember once we were sitting around and we were talking about shows about that sort of stuff we liked. Right. And I brought up Les Stroud, who was, uh, called him survivor man right yeah, yeah. and then they talked a little bit about that show alone which you know on the history channel which drops people out there yeah i think there's something to this because he as we were talking about he's like i can always tell who's gonna win i was like how so and he said two things typically the people who have whole stable home lives mm. do very well yeah, there's emotional stress right because it's not you're not worried about what's going on at home because you trust your partner and you try, you know, you, yeah, you, yeah. there's kids there and you usually have it's a bigger mind, a peace yeah. of mind. The other thing is the people who never stop trying to improve on their situation mm. always do better. Yeah. And so I, I yeah. think, I think if there's one thing we can say for Mormonism we're always going, what can we do to make it just a little bit better, right. right? What can I do to extract a little more meaning out of my scripture study? What can I do to extract a little more um, personal connection with the yeah. Savior? And, and I personal think, improvement. Yeah. Improvement. And so improvement. I think I think that carried over when the saints got out west. It's yeah. just my theory. I have nothing to back this up. Oh, absolutely. But I think, I think that that was one of the things that drove the saints was the fact that they weren't thinking about okay we got our crops in we got an adobe house up we're good no 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 no. we're we're striving for something different a little bit more a little bit more and i think that probably is what yeah. what helped them become you know what it has become was was that desire for more yeah absolutely and so yeah i uh, i think that that's definitely definitely huge is just that desire for more. And I, I think if you can keep that, I think, and I think we're seeing a case in that right now. Yeah. So it's amazing. It's just so amazing. Like you come out to the desert, the barren desert, salty desert on top of that. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, Brigham's like, Hey, we need to, we need to start working on a university. Right. Out of the gate. Right. We need to start college educating people, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> so yeah, it's amazing. So you know, 18, uh, 18, early 1850, they actually uh, 
created by an act of the General Assembly, they created the University of Deseret, which is now the University of Utah. But it was the University of Deseret at first. So, um, and uh, Orson Spencer, he was the, the leader. Uh, he was the, uh, sorry, he was the, uh, the chancellor. So the first, uh, the first board of regents, uh, they held their meeting on the 13th of March, 1850. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they didn't have a college campus like they do now, but they just you know, met in, uh, met in homes and stuff. And, uh, the, the board of regents, uh, you know, they weren't at first, they, they weren't really teaching classes, but what their job as, uh, regents of the university of Deseret, their job was to like encourage education generally. Among, right among the saints and to see what they could do to uh get books either print them themselves or you know have books shipped in so that we don't just end up being you know farmers right that's it but we want to be we want to be farmers but we also want to be mathematicians and astronomers and we want to speak many languages and we want to know about history and geography and like the doctrine of covenant says we want to learn from every good book right and and this is something i think that i can't say it's been lost to history but it's something that's not emphasized as much either is that when you look at the school of the prophets they weren't just in there studying scriptures no way right they were in there talking about things of their day right the politics of the day they were talking about different languages studying hebrew learning different customs right and and all these (laughs) other things which I think to a large degree has been lost on Mormonism now. I, I don't think we have those kind of things anymore, but I, I think it's something that's absolutely worthwhile in looking at bringing back. Yeah. Brigham uh, on more than one occasion, I think, you know, said things to the, not, this is not a quote, but said any elder could come up here on a, you know, in a church meeting and give us a lesson about chemistry. Right. And be giving us a lesson of, about the gospel. Yeah. Because we, embrace mormonism claims all truth right every true principle whether in science or art or history or religion we claim it it is ours that is part of our religion yep and so this was you know right in keeping with that uh to this whole experiment so um 1851 so just just a year after the university of deseret is established uh george d watt uh returns from his mission uh to england he comes to Deseret, and he starts recording everything. Sermons, he starts uh, writing, uh, and, you know, those sermons that he records, they start getting printed in the Deseret News. Um, most, the, the majority of the sermons that we have in the Journal Discourses were um, recorded by George D. Watt. In fact, he's the one that publishes them as the Journal Discourses. Um, gotcha. Uh, in the first place. And if you read, well, let's see. Oh, I didn't bring it with me. Anyway, if you have a set of journal discourses, uh, a lot of times, it, and maybe all the time, I don't know, but it'll have like, you know, who spoke and kind of the, their topic and the date and the location. And it'll also say who recorded it. And more often than not, it's recorded by George D. Watt. Really? Yeah. And um, so he becomes uh, Brigham Young's personal secretary. Okay. He can write faster than anyone. And right. Without missing anything. And so... Um, uh, 1852, um, Brigham Young, this is in uh, Journal Discourses, uh, 
volume four, uh, page 70. He says, Brother Spencer, and uh, this Brother Spencer is Orson Spencer, who is the chancellor of the University of Deseret. Uh, Brother Spencer has used language quite beyond your reach. Well, I have the foundation and he can make the building. When he commences the building, I have asked the Board of Regents this is of the University of Deseret. I've asked the Board of Regents to cast out from their system of education, the present orthography and written form of our language, that when my children are taught the graphic sign for A, it may always represent that individual sound only. But as it is now, the child is perplexed that the sign A should have one sound in mate and a second sound in father and a third sound in fall and a fourth sound in man and a fifth sound in many and in other combinations sounding different from these, while in others A is not sounded at all. I say, let it have one sound all the time. And when P is introduced to a word, let it not be silent as in physic or sound like F in physic and let, the, and let two not be placed instead of one in apple. Hmm. So, so this is, you know, um, you know, this is April. This is, this is, this is, this is general conference stuff. Right. He's like, <laughs> uh, the way that we spell things, that's part of the gospel. And I'm giving him a sermon on it right here. Right. So, uh, everything, everything falls under the purview of the gospel. Right. So, okay. 1853, uh, they make a committee, um, Farley P. Pratt, Heber C. Kimball, and George W. Wand, uh, a, a committee on uh, you know, coming up with spelling reform. But they don't do much uh, until the following, um, uh, well, so, yeah, this is, that was 18, oh, yeah, October 27th, so, so uh, November uh, 1853, uh, they can get a committee together. Daniel Wells is there, he says, and their, their job is to come up with, a, what are we going to do? to standardize the orthography sure he says how about uh, phonetic shorthand like Pippin? and ezra t benson says how about we just stick with the old alphabet <laughs> and he uh will uh wilford woodruff says no let's use a phonetic alphabet and farley pratt says how about we use Pittman's alphabet okay um and it's interesting, uh, the notes, like the minutes from this meeting um, show that Parley Pratt's suggestion kind of wins out because George D. Watt, who's taking notes, he switches after he switches to uh, Pittman alphabet. Right then, like right mid, then. Yeah. like mid-meeting, yeah. just like, okay, this is okay, what we're doing. Do it. Let's try it. Let's experiment with this. So... Um, Um, so that's the 18th of November. So 23rd of November, they officially decide to adopt Pittman. Uh, 26th of November, um, the Board of Regents, they, they meet together and they start learning the alphabet, like practicing together. You know, they have their slates, whatever. Right. And they're practicing so that they can know uh, about this alphabet and get a little experience so they can pass along to others. But in on the 29th of November, uh, there's something that they had not planned on. And that is uh, Willard Richards. He attends. The, he had not been attending the meetings. Okay. And, uh, but he comes, and they have the Pittman alphabet up there, and um, and uh, which the Pittman alphabet was not entirely uh, the same as the, the, the Latin alphabet, the English alphabet, but it was had a lot of things in common. 
Okay. So, but uh, Willard Richards is having none of it. He says, we want a new kind of alphabet, differing from the compound mess of stuff up on that sheet. Those characters may be employed in improving the English orthography, uh, though at the same time, it is, as I have sometimes said, it seems like putting new wine into old bottles. Mm-hmm. Like we want, we want a new alphabet to, uh, for this experiment, and we don't want it to uh, look like that old stuff. And actually, some, some other uh, efforts at spelling reform have kind of felt the same way because you can kind of standardize uh, spelling using the same letters, but then it just looks like it's misspelled. Right. So, so that's kind of an argument for let's just get new letters altogether. So it just is totally new rather than trying to make standardization fit with the old alphabet so any 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 evidence to suggest that brigham told uh, uh um oh I'm blanking on his name here willard. willard thank you told willard hey i think they're barking up the wrong tree go go fix this uh not that i not that i know of brigham was at this meeting though. okay he was and, yes and um i think i think my uh, my sense is that Brigham was was on board with the the phenotype, the Pittman phenotype. In fact, I mean, he had uh, he had written that letter to George Watt in 1847 saying, "Bring us back 200 pounds right. of phenotype, yeah, a Pittman phenotype." So I think he was on board with that. But Willard Richards, you know, just spoke convincingly and kind of convinced everyone that we we want to be even more radical than that. We want to be totally new. And um, so, so they decided. So, so that was in uh, November and January of 1854. The Deseret News announces uh, that the Board of Regents, in company with the governor and heads of departments, have adopted a new alphabet consisting of 38 characters. Um, so now the the Deseret News didn't have any type for it, so they couldn't. They just made the announcement, but they didn't. They couldn't like print any samples or whatever. Um, but later on that year, uh, they made some wood cuttings. Okay. And, you know, and printed some little cards and stuff that they would hand out that showed the desert alphabet. And so here's some, you know, samples there. This uh, on the left, this is a uh, Hosea Stout's uh, journal. Okay. And he, he was there at the meeting of the regents and, um, uh, and he copied, uh, he copied them down. This matches kind of the, uh, the woodcut uh, gotcha. printed uh, versions there. Let, let me ask you this real quick. How was it received by the general membership in Utah during that time? Yeah. I mean, at first, I'm sure it was just uh, a sensation, you know? Right. Uh, but eventually the, eventually the, uh, the charm wore off. Okay. Yeah. Which is why, why no one knows about the desert outfit or not no one, but, Right. It's uh, relatively unknown. Um, the, the charm wore off pretty quickly. So part of it, part of it was that they maybe uh, they may have jumped the gun a little bit. They announced this and they they put these things out, but then the the board of regents kept fiddling with it, and they went, um, you know, here's some like different versions. And they had different versions that came out. There was anywhere from like 33 to 41 oh. characters because they're like, oh, no, we really need a letter for this. Mm, no, no, no. Let's get rid of that. We can just, you know, use a combination of letters to make that sound and we'll just, you know, make it consistent or whatever. And they, they just kept fiddling with it. Um, um, 
and you know by this time they they still didn't have any type but you know but in 1855 there were there were people who felt like it was serious so here's one of them john t morris of cedar city uh, you know he died in 1855 and uh, he had his tombstone you know wow in memory of john t uh morris born february 14 1828 um so this uh this gravestone actually um you know that was in 1855 so it actually decayed away i don't know exactly what happened to it but they his family uh replaced it with a granite stone um so that's the next i'll be darned and then just gave the 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 interpretation underneath like yes okay that's right so so that's kind of cool because actually i just found out while i was researching for this there's there's a desert alphabet tombstone in pleasant grove oh really 2013 looks like november 18th 2013 so huh and actually it's uh when i die if if you outlive me my i plan to have desert alphabet on my tombstone too so you can come throw some flowers on my nice 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 uh, enjoy the well i hope it's not for a long time but yeah okay so that was 1855 1856 um there was a committee put together george watt wilford woodruff and samuel richards specifically to come up with manuscripts for children's books gotcha because we need to we need to uh yes foreigners are a thing and adults who already know how to read and write it's like yeah but we're we're interested in we're interested in the children we want that generation to to have this uh advantage we want them to be able to learn how to read and write and and learn how to and know how to spell and read everything right two weeks instead of five six years i don't know how long it takes for you know for yeah americans or englishmen to get a a grasp grasp enough where you can like read a newspaper right it's not just it doesn't it takes no it takes years right i'm sitting here thinking about it and i'm yeah and that's because of the the absurdities in our orthography but so we want to teach the children um and uh unfortunately we don't have that they they worked up some manuscripts uh but we don't have those um because something else is coming up historically in 1857 johnson's army uh the utah war yeah buchanan's blunder johnson's army is comes uh into utah occupies you know they work out a peace settlement peace treaty but uh part of the preparations for the invading army was um to take all of the records of the church in salt lake and take them down to fillmore Mm-hmm. and um among among those records were these manuscripts and uh, and they get lost somewhere along the way so we don't have them but uh and so the committee you know when things settled down the committee's like hey we don't we don't have them anymore and so uh brigham said to uh wilford woodruff take hold of george watt and get up some more like right do it again so we don't have uh, those those original ones um, we know that they, they, they talk about kind of exciting stuff like pioneers, the Mormon battalion, you know, Salt Lake Valley, the desert territory, grizzly bears and buffalo bull fights. We know that it, they talked <laughs> like the, 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 the readers talk about these uh, different topics, the readers that they came up with uh, later, which is, you know, I showed you kind of earlier. Right. Um, a lot of the, the things in here are just kind of a little more bland. 
Right. Some of them are interesting, but uh, uh, anyway, it's kind of a shame that we lost those things. But um, okay, but um, so 1857-58 uh, Utah War. 1859, though, we actually get some type. Oh, okay. Okay, it's and uh, we actually tried um, earlier. The, the Saints had tried to make their own type, but we just it kind of failed. It didn't. It didn't turn out well. We didn't have the equipment. So they ordered some back east. Um, and it came. And uh, the Deseret News starts printing articles with the new alphabet. So there it is. And excuse me, what they did is they they basically print like passages of scripture. So this is a section from Matthew okay. 5. So this is Sermon on the Mount stuff. Um, and so that was kind of exciting. Um did they ever do a full set of scriptures in yes. the desert album? Well, alphabet? sort of. I'll get, well, I'll get to that okay. very shortly. Okay. Shelf that. Um, 1860. Um, a lot of things, like things were going full speed here. So the church clerks and even like ward clerks were keeping records in the, the desert alphabet. And um, gold coins. This is a $5 gold piece. Okay. Stamp. So 1860 it says around it, holiness to the Lord. Okay, on the on the side of the line. On the other side, it's just you know, standard orthography, but it says, you know, let's say, Deseret Assay uh, of oh, Office. Deseret Assay Office, pure gold. Finally. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, journal, people are keeping their journals in it. There's very interesting things that come out of a lot of this because, because the, the Deseret Alphabet is phonetic, then without special training, people just write the way they speak. Mm -hmm. So if we have people's journals and letters and stuff, it actually kind of gives us a, a little window on what sort of accents or dialects oh, okay. our pioneer ancestors had. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, uh, they uniformly, everyone, uh, including, you know, on, on these, uh, you know, these readers here. Right. Let me show you the, this is the uh, first one. This is the, the second one. But now, you know, we, we, all, we all now say Deseret, but uh, they wrote it Desiret. Desiret. Huh. Territory of Desiret. Huh. So, anyway, so we get a window on kind of how they talked. Their, their, yeah, their, their dialects right. and their yeah. accents even. Right. And is another interesting thing is that uh, the, Des the Desiret, I'll call it the Desiret alphabet from now on. The Desiret alphabet uh, was used to preserve some Hopi uh, language as well. Really? Because we sent missionaries, uh, Marion Shelton and um, Thales Haskell, to um, Thales? Uh, Thales Haskell to the Hopi. Okay. And they recorded Hopi words with the Desiret alphabet so that, so we can read it now and know like, what the Hopis sounded like back then too. Wow. Which is cool. Yeah. Another cool thing uh, about this is that they did do the Book of Mormon. Okay. Okay. And there, there are a lot of Book of Mormon words that are in the Bible too. Right. Jesus and Jerusalem and yeah. um, stuff like that. But there's also words that are new to the Book of Mormon, right? Nephi right. and Shiblon and Zenus and stuff. And, um, you know, the LDS church came up with a pronunciation guide Right, and it's in the back of the scriptures. But that pronunci that pronunciation guide was entirely arbitrary. 
Okay. And they just came up with these rules of how to pronounce Book of Mormon words um, just for the sake of uniformity, not for the sake of any sort of accuracy. Okay. But uh, we can get kind of a window again on how the early saints, not, not necessarily Joseph Smith necessarily, but you know, his contemporaries, how they spoke Book of Mormon names because they're recording yeah. the Deseret alphabet. And yeah. So there's a lot of kind of cool things that, uh, that come from that, uh, from those recordings. So despite all this um, kind of activity, uh, the, like I said, the charm kind of wore off and the enthusiasm was just waning, waning. pretty yeah. quickly because all the adults already knew how, I mean, not all the adults, uh, there was foreigners, but everyone who spoke English already was not really that interested. It, you know, it's, let, let me ask you this. How much, how much of that waning also had to do with, because if I'm not mistaken, this is about the time now that you start seeing some, as, as Brigham would call them, Gentiles coming to the Salt Lake Valley, right? Mining, railroads, those sorts of things. Are, are they finding that this alphabet is now posing maybe a little no, bit of a barrier? No doubt that was part of it as well. Okay. Yeah, it was kind of a little, a little late maybe. Like if they, maybe if they had done it a couple right. of decades earlier, Right, we were getting into 1860. If they'd done it in, if they'd done it in 1850, before Johnston's army came out, you know, um, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting, an interesting thought. Uh, but they don't, and um, even though there's all this flurry of activity in 1860, 1862, uh, Robert Campbell, he's the superintendent of the common schools. He uh, and I. I don't know if I can't I can't I can't imagine that he had much confidence uh, in this, but anyway, he uh, he brings a manuscript to Brigham Young um, for a children's reader. Okay, uh, written with the standard orthography. He's gotcha. Like, he's kind of like, hey, you know this desert alphabet thing. It's not really working out, but <laughs> I have I have here uh, a manuscript. You know, it's written in standard orthography. Why don't we give it a try? Right. And uh, yeah, Brigham. His response was emphatic. He said uh, that he said, I will not consent to, uh, to have my type ink or paper used to print such trash. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, so, so he, he was, you know, didn't have strong feelings at all for it about it then. Right. He has very strong feelings about very few things. <laughs> it's just kind of, yeah. No. So, um, well, he doesn't look like a happy fellow. <laughs> no one did back then but um so uh so obviously that doesn't happen um 1864 you know they're kind of and brigham says you know if if i had if my influence was sufficient and it was up to me i would completely drop the old system like just stop like throw all just that, cold turkey throw all that type away and just do not just an because like those desert news articles like it was just right you know it was a 20 page newspaper and there's just a little like a column you know, right in the desert up in the so uh so they're wondering what to do 1864 the regents get back together and they decide maybe we should go back to Pittman. you know the idea um Pittman, 
you know, has already printed a bunch of books. So we, we can kind of gain the advantage of everything that's been printed. They can get type probably a heck of a lot type, easier. Yes. Um, but instead, uh, what they ultimately end up doing is like recommitting themselves to the desert alphabet. So the desert news starts printing articles again. Um, and partly they decided maybe it's because the type that we got was kind of ugly and that's mm. an impediment. So, um, so Brigham Young, 1860, uh, so this is 1868 now. Uh, so yeah, so 1864, they, they decided we're going to, we're going to, we're going to keep going. We're going to try to print our own books. We're going to get new type and all that. So by the time 1868 comes, they have gotten the new type and they've actually printed uh, the books or they've okay. started printing them. So, you know, here's again, this is from the, in the October conference. Um, a few items I wish to lay before the conference before we dismiss, which I think we shall do when we get through our meeting this afternoon. One of those items is to present to the congregation the Deseret Alphabet. We have now many thousands of small books called the first and second readers adapted to school purposes on the way to this city. So they're in route. As soon as they arrive, we shall distribute them throughout the territory. We wish to introduce this alphabet into our schools. Consequently, we give this public notice. We have been contemplating this for years. I'm sure he was so happy to finally have accomplished something. The advantages of this alphabet will soon be realized, especially by foreigners. Brethren who come here knowing nothing of the English language will find its acquisition greatly facilitated by means of this alphabet, by which all the sounds of the language can be represented and expressed with the greatest ease. As this is the grand difficulty foreigners experience in learning the English language, they will find a knowledge of this alphabet will greatly facilitate their efforts in acquiring at least a partial English education. It will also be very advantageous to our children. It will be the means of introducing uniformity in, or, in our orthography, and the years that are now required to learn to read and spell can be devoted to other studies. Okay. So, so that was the that was the the whole idea, um, the main idea anyway. Now, some of the at this time, like some of the newspapers back east, they were, and this is goes with the Gentile influence. Like there's reports about the Mormons are coming up with this. New alphabet, it's a secret, and they say it's a secret. It's a code. It's a code to keep Mormon secrets, you know, or to uh, to prevent Mormon youth from getting hold of the oh, uh, of Gentile gotcha. material. They don't want them to understand that. They don't want us to understand their stuff. Um, but anyone who's looked at anything, anything that was ever printed, like they, everything always has a key in the front yep. that shows how to read it. Yep. So incredibly inept secret keepers right right <clears throat> um so uh that wasn't it uh it was just really to right. improve uh improve the language so here's the so i, ha I have it here but <coughs> on the slide here's the uh the first the first reader that's so cool it's very cool and uh the second one so they printed ten thousand copies of each of these the first and that's not a small undertaking back in the day that's enormous that's a huge undertaking and it cost them a fortune um i would think it was you know it was like it was, it was ten thousand dollars or something right like that, which is uh, unheard of yeah um interesting this is just kind of a side note but um on the cover there and you can see it there there's a there's a picture of the salt lake temple now this was printed in 
Um, but yeah, all these, uh, all these, you know, these books are distributed to all the schools in the territory. Kids are starting to read it. Um, but again, uh, the interest just starts to drop off again. And by 1875, the Board of Regents is thinking about going back to Pittman. And they actually do. In 1875, they decide we're going back. We're going back to Pittman, uh, Pittman uh, formativity. And uh, that's what we're going to go with. And um, Orson Pratt. Is Brigham dead by this point? What year? Not. He's not. <clears throat> is there any indication how Brigham felt about this, right? Because going back to Pittman? Yeah. Well, 1877. Oh, I guess that was okay. 1877 is uh, the year Brigham dies. Oh. And uh, Orson Pratt is actually in England for the purpose of getting Pittman uh, phonotype to bring back so they can print books with that when Brigham dies and he just gets called back. He never uh, purchases the type as far as we know. <clears throat> and basically that's the end of hmm. Mormonism's experimentation into English reform. Like it dies with Brigham and uh, John Taylor doesn't care about it. <clears throat> I don't know if he doesn't care about it, but he's got bigger problems. Let me say that. So it, it right. gets totally push to the wayside yeah because now all of a sudden you're fighting for your life and not going to jail and yeah. living on the underground that's and... exactly right yeah i could see where that so would... he gets pushed to the side and never comes back hmm. uh, basically so um yeah i have i have a little bit of uh of my artwork here on the next one it's a little bit of uh, <clears throat> a little bit of poetry a little bit of calligraphy it's the life of the desert alphabet in one stanza and it reads an alphabet, an alphabet. We have got an alphabet and we need no more alphabet. <laughs> That's awesome. So a little uh, shout out to Nephi there. But um, yeah, that's what, uh, that's the story of the desert alphabet. So um, I've got, I've got those books I showed you. There are, there are some modern, um, some modern things uh, printed in uh, the desert alphabet. So there's one guy named John Jenkins and, you can you know find him online, but he's got he's got some he's got quite a few books that he's um, oh the lectures of faith published uh, with the Desert Alphabet. He has changed the font a little bit, kind of he has his own spin on it. You know, there's what the inside looks like. Okay. Okay. This is uh this is this is the Book of Mormon. So this is the John Jenkins like modern um, version. Uh, the so which is you know you can get on Amazon or something. If you have, by the way, the like one of the full Book of Mormon, like I said, there's only 500 of those printed, and it's kind of a weird thing. Those things are worth like ten thousand dollars or something, you know, depending right. on the, depending on the condition it's in. But uh, they're quite rare. So so there are um, for a while when I was in uh, when I was at UCLA, there was a uh, a Yahoo group dealing with the desert alphabet that I joined. That's all kind of gone the way now, but um, I actually, uh, scroll down a little bit. So when, again, when I was at UCLA, they actually, I was a graduate student there and they actually, um, they had a web space, like a web page for every graduate student, if you wanted to have your own web page. So, hmm. so, you know, to like, 
highlight your right research or whatever. <laughs> so I ended up uh, using mine not to do anything at all with chemistry, but I, uh, I turned it into Joshua Erickson's Desert Alphabet pages. That's awesome. So if you Google that, you can find it. Now, this was uh, many years ago. I actually don't have access to these web pages to like to edit them or whatever right. anymore. And so there's a lot of dead links. Oh, okay. There. But there's still a lot of good information on there. Uh, I've compiled a lot of things. Um, one of the cool ones is that my website has a bunch of fonts. So, and, okay. I, and I made these fonts. I designed these um, with font creating software. And um, so. Adamic, Adamic B. Yeah. <laughs> Times B, Tumble B. I like it. Queen B. I like it. So um, some of these were designed by me. Some of them were designed by other people. And I just kind of um, consolidated gotcha. it in one place, you know, scoured the internet. There probably have been other fonts that have been created since. But at the time, I had everything that I could find and I put it all gotcha. together. So you can download those fonts, you know, for free and put them on your computer and then you can type with them. It takes a little bit of uh, doing because our keyboard has, right doesn't have, you know, the Desert Alphabet has, you know, 40 right. characters. Um, and there's only, you know, 26 alphabetic keys. So some of the punctuation and stuff is is used, but but uh, you can go there. Um, it's kind of cool. I have one more thing to show you, I guess. Show down. So uh, when Benjamin Schaefer comes to my house, he let, he let, he's commented on this before. He's like, it's the most, <laughs> it's the most like, it's the strangest, most iconic thing that you could see on a house. It's got the Taurus scroll. With yeah, it's a mezuzah. Right. So it has you know, some scriptures in there. But on the outside, it says holiness to the Lord in the desert alphabet. That's so gangster. That's a one of a kind. Yeah, right I like it. And, um, um, you know, this, they've got lamb's blood on the door there from Passover. So it's got like lamb's blood and this mezuzah with the desert alphabet. It's like, nice. This is, these are some weird people who live here. No, that's awesome. So let me ask you this. Because you're literally a rocket scientist. So what, what uh, I'm, I'm going to default to you on this was Brigham's goal met with the desert alphabet. Was it easier than trying to learn English? Oh, uh, I, you know, I think it, yes, I think it would be, but, um, similar to the arguments that Benjamin Franklin made, right? Yeah, it would be easier. Uh, and yet, but there's just so much inertia. I'll right. just call it inertia. It's like s social or societal inertia to get something, some kind of transformation uh, like that. I mean, and that's true with all the rest of Mormonism too. You know, and, and I mean, we, we're supposed to be kingdom of God, Desiree, right? But then like, oh, well, we'll just, we'll become part of the United States and then we'll just kind of fall in line. And, and we just, Utah doesn't really, I mean, Utah doesn't really, I'm not talking about the church necessarily or Mormonism, but Utah as a state, um, you know, we don't really lead the way mm -hmm. in anything, really. Uh, there are things that are better about Utah than other places, but plenty of things that are worse, too, or just we're just kind of middle of the road in a lot of ways. No, I agree with you. As I was thinking about this last night before before we recorded this, and I sat for probably an hour or two and just kind of thought about it and, and its ramifications. I think it, just like you were saying, it really is a microcosm of the thrust of what Brigham wanted to do. 
right? And what the yeah. Lord, I believe, inspired Brigham to do, which was go find an area nobody else wants. And out of that, you're going to build your own kingdom. Yeah. My kingdom. Right. And just by dribs and drabs, we let that Babylon come come in and, and mm. creep in and subvert that. Because yeah. um, when, when, when you're reading Brigham, there's a very he he's making a, a a really strong line a really dark line between babylon and us right yeah. he speaks out against public schools right he's not a fan of public school systems we are now he's like we do not want to do this i think he actually says why would i want babylon to educate my children yeah right and so <clears throat> he's he's keenly aware of this and by and there were there were i mean just that alone like it was a, it's not, it's not a hidden thing. Mm-hmm. It was an open conspiracy. Yeah. Um, by uh, some folks to, in, to set up public schools in order to uh, get Mormon children to not be Mormon. You look at the Alta Academy. I mean, not the Alta Academy, excuse me. The, the Alta club down is downtown, oh, yeah. which was a business, a club for businessmen who were, quote gentiles right yeah who just that their whole thrust was to subvert this they they figured out that utah was kind of the the crossroads of the west you could get to the southwest the northwest all from this one hub um and and they then they found natural resources the minerals in the in the hills and they understood one impediment right zion right Right. it was it was the mormons right get rid of zion yep and so I, I really do think it's a microcosm yeah. of, of what I think happened to Utah in those early days. And, I you know, as tempting as it is to blame outside influences, I, I think the, probably the biggest takeaway that, that I thought about this and is this idea of, no, this probably came from the bottom up, right? There was probably a lot of people who were on board with not being quite so weird oh quite so different and so sometimes i think that that feeling of being different can it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable um but i i think it's you got to count the costs right i don't think and i don't think that when it did come from the bottom up anybody was like let's do everything we can to be like philadelphia or be like boston right they were like well that's a good idea and Brother Brigham said that all truth belongs to Mormonism. So we'll just take this here, right? Because I'm good at making excuses for myself. I can kind of see how yeah. someone would get there, right? Yeah. So I, I think if any, I think it's it's two things. One is it harkens back to to my my takeaways where it, it makes me harken back to those days and remember what it is that that we should be about, right? Yeah. Which is a a counterculture, a different right. society. And the other is you got to guard. You got to be on guard about that yeah. because there's a lot of times those things will will feel very appealing in the moment, but you know, yet will subvert your your ultimate goal. Right. You know what I think it is too. Uh, a, a lot of it is not. It's not necessarily any particular principle. Right. But it's it's a vision. Yep. That we are going to be a separate people, and once that once that vision is lost then then the rep then it's easy to just be like well we'll just, we'll just be more like our neighbors yeah and just fit in and we're not this isn't really the kingdom we're just 
Right. We're just, we're just the church here, uh, you know, and we go to church and stuff, but we're not, we're not the kingdom. We're not building the kingdom. We're just, we just live in Utah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. Well, dude, that was good stuff. Yeah, it's pretty good. Awesome. All right. Bye, everybody. Okay, bye. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.